0: Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st.
2: Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21
3: beer has nearly everything uh, in terms of potentially what would benefit the human nutrition i think it's really important that they have this information available because i think people are generally interested now to know really what's in some of the things they're eating and drinking
1: this week on the show you and i both know that beer has a lot of nutritional value but are we prepared to speak intelligently about that How do we get consumers to look past beer stereotypes and clickbait headlines?
3: Hi, I'm Glenn Fox. I'm Professor of Brewing Science at the University of California in Davis.
1: Glenn, when did humans first recognize beer as healthy?
3: I think humans have understood to some level the health benefits coming from fermented beverages, probably s- since the time they were actually producing those, there is some sort of conflicting evidence that, and, and the mainstream thinking now is that people were producing these fermented beverages because generally the water was unhealthy. But in, in many regions of the world at that time, there would have, the, the water uh, in the rivers and the streams would have been healthy because the civilization really hadn't kicked off. But I think they also, by producing these fermented beverages, realised there was something extra in these beverages. Uh, and often if people were feeling a little unwell uh, and maybe, um, you know, when, when mum wasn't feeling so great with the kids, they would have this fermented product and they might start to feel a little better. Uh, and there are some sort of moments through history where people were saying that they were treating family members on their deathbeds and suddenly they were giving them some beer, and then within a day or two people started to feel better. So I think people have had an understanding that a fermented beverage uh, and in, if we go back long enough, that was only really a beer type of beverage wine really wasn't mainstream in Europe at that stage. It was a beer type of drink. They realized there was some health benefit. And it wasn't just mum and dad and maybe grandma and grandpa who were drinking, the kids were drinking. Probably hope well. Hopefully, smaller portions of this as well. They didn't understand what was in there in terms of the benefits to the human body, but they just did understand that there were some benefits in consuming these fermented beverages. And I think at then it became more of a mainstream process. It became part of the part of the household duties that people were producing these fermented products. So there was always something in the house just in case. Um, but I'm sure they also valued the positive contribution of the alcohol they were producing and, and the well-being and good, how good they felt uh, after having a couple of cups of, of fermented beer.
1: What is the French paradox?
3: Well, as I understand it, the French paradox was where they were comparing the, the health of the French people against the health of an, an Irish population. And we are going back a couple of hundred years, so we can imagine the the lifestyle of both those different communities. The French was really more about probably wine and consuming wine and probably more vegetables and fruits. Whereas the Irish, and this may be a little bit too stereotyped, um, but basically meat and potatoes. Uh, and we understand that in the 1800s, especially in the 1840s and 1860s, with the potato famine, highlighted the impact of. Um, a, a blight on the potato production. So clearly potato production was a big part of the Irish uh, community and agricultural scene. So to lose that production uh, had an impact on on what was available for the sort of poorer Irish communities. But also the Irish were drinking a lot of beer. No surprises there. Again, that might be too stereotyped, but the Irish were drinking a lot of beer and in the late 1800s started to drink Guinness so we're comparing a red wine diet with probably lots of varied vegetables and meats against a probably more limited diet that the Irish were having. So this was called the French paradox and there was just some assumptions made around that consuming wine and certainly consuming other, a range of, vi- of, of uh, fruits and vegetables was much better for you compared to the Irish diet.
1: There are a lot of different groups of chemicals in beer. Which ones are considered healthy?
3: Well, both the contribution of malt and hops would be considered the most significant portions or contributions of these broad groups of chemicals that contribute to human health. Uh, Other than lots of proteins, and we are talking about thousands of individual proteins and the residual amino acids that are left over in beer. Mm-hmm. And then we have all the non-fermentable sugars, which might be considered as calories or, or contribute to the calorie calculation. But there's also a fibre component, some residual beta-glucan and arabinazolam would con- contru- contribute fibre. And there are a range of antioxidants and phytochemicals and phytonutrients coming from both the, the grain and the hops. And these are considered, uh, these would be phenols, phenolic acids, and polyphenols. And then we've got a really broad range of minerals and vitamins. So in terms of the the broad spectrum of, of compounds, beer has nearly everything uh, in terms of potentially what would benefit the human nutrition.
1: Glenn, I don't know if this is true, but in brewing school, I remember learning that many European athletes drink non-alcoholic beer after workouts or games. Is non-alcoholic beer a health drink?
3: That's a great question, John. And my first response would be yes. I I think it could easily be considered that. And I also, while I would not consider myself an athlete, I do like to get out and and ride my bike on weekends and do some big miles. And I do feel generally better coming back uh, and drinking a non-alcoholic beer as opposed to drinking one of those energy drinks. So that if we if we think the only difference between a non-alcoholic beer and an alcoholic beer is the presence of alcohol we are getting all of those broad groups of vitamins, minerals and antioxidants. So while the the government might not like how we propose this, but I would certainly consider a non-alcoholic beer to be a health drink.
1: Talk about hop compounds, is it true that hops can help keep us from getting cancer or becoming obese? And if so, why are hops so rarely used in foods outside of beer?
3: Hops were were originally used in foods. So if we go back long before hops were being used in brewing, so in the sort of 700s and 800s, they were used in foods mainly for preservation. And they would have also contributed some flavouring and I'd imagine the heating process probably actually changed the the, the bitter acids and actually made them more bitter. So people would have known the contribution of hops to both flavour as well as the preservation of food. However, when hops became mainstream use in brewing, I think people just thought, well, okay, that's now the function of hops. We don't think about using hops in food, we just use hops in brewing. It may have been a mistake, I think, that we could still go back to possibly using hops in, in food and, and I have read a couple of uh, articles where people are using the trube from the kettle uh, and using that in food production so they're actually potentially getting some residual uh, alpha acids and, and all those phenol compounds coming through in those food products. But it's interesting that if you look at the metabolic pathways of the production of some of these phenolic compounds. They follow this, the same pathway and the same group of phenolic f- compounds in the broad families that our friends in the wine industry love to boast about with resveratrol as being the sort of the, the cure-all uh, and the red wine, drinking red wine will, will basically save you. Um, these compounds have very similar structure to the hop compounds. So we, we like to <laughs> joke with our friends in the wine industry that beer is probably more healthy than wine. Because it does have a one particular compound that I do talk a lot about, and maybe probably too much, but I I, I think this is something we the industry needs to think about, is one particular compound, Xanthumol. It comes from hops, it, it survives the brewing process, goes all the way through, is in a finished beer. And in the early days, when a lot of folks were starting to profile the health benefits in beer, if we talk about the 80s and 90s, well, compared to today, the 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 broad range of beer styles was was a a lot more, a lot limited. So we had our standard lagers and ales and some porters and stouts. But now we have this, so we've stretched sort of the window or opened the window further on on IPAs. We've got doubles and triples and quadruples, and now we've got at the other end of the spectrum non-alcoholic beers. So all of those compounds are now increased significantly in in amount. In some of these double and triple IPAs, but just because of the amount of hops brewers are using. And we haven't been able to profile yet fully some of these compounds that are in doubles and triples. Um, but I would imagine that we're seeing some of these compounds at levels that would be considered having significant health benefits. And again, the negative to all of that is the amount of alcohol in double and triple IPAs. So there would always be that sort of backwards and forwards about the pros and cons of, yes, it's got these high levels of these nutritional compounds or antioxidants, but there's a high level of alcohol. Uh, and I guess that's where the, this whole story keeps coming back to is, is the health benefits even with alcohol. So I think it's, it's great that we, we talk about this, but I think we need to sort of – the industry needs to be a little, a little bit more on the front foot when we do see some negative press about alcohol and and human health.
1: What are some of the other alleged or proven health benefits of beer?
3: Well, it's interesting. You could read a, a number of different books by various authors, both brewers and nutritionalists, and there's very few things that people say that beer can't fix or at least have some positive contribution to. Some of the easiest stuff to, to sort of tap into is to do with heart health. And again, following sort of the, the studies in the 80s when they looked at the Mediterranean diet and people were having a lot of red wine and, and olive oil. Um, and that was really, they talked about the health benefits for the human heart. Similar parallel, well, parallel studies have looked at beer. So we know that we can actually reduce um, cholesterol. Uh, reduces the risk of uh, heart attacks. So there's sort of that's the easy stuff to, to talk about when it comes to heart. But also can reduce the risk of kidney stones. Uh, the, the calcium and minerals in beer can actually add to some bone strength. This is where there's you do get these conflicting stories about potentially improving memory. Uh, there are some publications out there that it actually has an the alcohol, just the alcohol, nothing else in, the, in in any alcoholic beverage, but just the alcohol itself can actually have a really negative impact on brain and brain function. So we have these conflicting stories um, again, but it's purely based on the presence of alcohol, not all the other positive contribution coming from from the from beer. It can reduce the risk of diabetes. Um, Beer is really very quite low in calories. Uh, So again, it's it's one of those things. It's not necessarily how much beer you're drinking. It might be the other things you're having with your beer, how much food you're having. So there is a a, a broad range of positive health benefits that come through drinking beer in moderation. Uh, But there's always that counter argument that it's got alcohol.
1: You already mentioned about beer being healthier than wine. Is there anything else you want to say about that?
3: The industry, while we we do focus on on beer itself, I think when it comes to human health, I think this is where the beer and wine industries can, can champion the cause together uh, rather than saying that you need to drink beer or you need to drink wine to get these benefits. And we do tease our friends in the wine industry because we have more minerals and vitamins in beer than they do. But If we put all that fun argument aside, I think this is where the industry can come together and uh, be one voice about the positive nutritional benefits coming from beer and wine. Um, We do joke with them uh, around this, but I think this is an opportunity for both these industries to to be a little bit more cohesive in coming together and having this story. And when you hear or, or read one particular news article about oh we you know you got to drink wine because it's you know it's the only alcoholic beverage that can have any health benefits i think this is where the brewing industry has to be uh, ready to counter that argument or even support that by saying yes that's true but also beer has all these other things as well so i think this is where both these industries have to come together and have a more cohesive positive story
1: if someone needs to increase ferulic acid in their diet should they eat more tomatoes or just have a beer
3: <laughs> uh, maybe have a bloody mary um <laughs> uh it's one of those things this is where we can take a snapshot of data and suddenly make something look so much better than it is uh the ferulic acid in beer is coming from the uh from the grain itself uh it's in the endosperm cell walls it's part of the structural elements of beta-glucan and xylan. and certainly it's at higher levels in wheat uh, so if you're drinking wheat beers, there's definitely more ferulic acid present, and we know to do with the hefeweizen and the conversion of, of ferulic acid to 4 vinyl guacol. So everyone that loves those hefeweizens and those spicy notes, that's what we're we're getting. It's one of those things. I, f- I think we could certainly uh, have non-alcoholic wheat beers, and I think the amount of ferulic acid you're getting would have s- really positive impact on your health in terms of its antioxidant properties. But as, again, as soon as we add our alcohol into that calculation, then there's sort of that backwards and forwards of, yes, you get the benefits from the ferulic acid and drink lots of beer, but then the counter-argument is you get consuming a lot of alcohol at the same time. Um, maybe just have have a pizza with lots of tomato sauce uh, with your beer might be a, a good way to get some balance there.
1: Th- that theme of the Push and pull between the benefits and the alcohol—you've mentioned that several times. Now, do you think that um, we need to do a better job as an industry of of making more sessionable beers, beers of you know not zero alcohol content, but of you know very low alcohol content?
3: I think there's a number of surveys now that suggest that the people sort of coming into the industry or or sort of entering the, the brewing industry from a, a, a consumption perspective. Hopefully, they're all over 21 if they're in America. They're looking for diversity. They're looking for different beer styles, and they're not going to sit and drink 10 IPAs or 10 stouts. They're looking to have an IPA. Then they might be looking to have a non-alcoholic beer, and then they're looking to have maybe a kombucha. Um, And then they can sort of stay out for a lot longer than we can nowadays because they're not getting that sort of absolute overload and buzz with the alcohol. I think this is where the industry is probably tapping into that understanding of that demographic that they want to drink alcohol but not actually drink excessively or drink the same type of alcohol all the time. And I think this is where the industry needs to sort of be ready and have those options available for the for these people uh, rather than say well we brew beer uh, and we brew high alcohol beer and and that's our game. I think they need to be more Uh, fluid and be able to pivot to these sort of mid-strength or low-alcohol beers as well.
1: Talk more about the vitamins and minerals found in beer. And to what extent might that vary between filtered and unfiltered beers?
3: So, one of the, well, two of the big positives we talk about uh, in terms of human health coming from beer are vitamins and minerals. And again, teasing our friends in the wine industry, this is really one of the the things we can put our hats on, is the the profile of certainly B-group vitamins and minerals. We know that the different beer styles and basically the different contribution of of barley or wheat to to that recipe uh, will give you different portions of these vitamins and minerals. But the levels we're getting in beer is still not nearly enough to actually say, well, you can't substitute any other foods or that because you're getting enough of these from beer that's not the case There's not that high levels that you definitely want to only get your b group vitamins from beer or only get your calcium from drinking beer uh, that's probably a problem for growing children uh, if mum doesn't want to give them a beer but you've got to drink milk so the levels of these vitamins and minerals are not that high in beer uh, there's not necessarily any differences in in or big differences in the beer styles, or whether it's filtered or unfiltered. Um, basically, thousands of metabolites are passengers through the brewing process, so they they're in the grain or they're in the hops. They're left over from the actual grain filling period, so producing the crop or the hop crop. They're all involved in the metabolic processes of developing grain or developing the hop cones, and then when these grains or, or the hop cones are mature, they're just sitting there. They're basically on a bus, on a, on a ride. They're there. Um, so th- they're just passengers in this process and they're there at the very end. I don't think there's any ways to specifically increase the levels of these unless you're adding additional raw materials. We just know they're there. Um, I can't see the industry suddenly saying, well, we have to have a certain amount of B group vitamins in beer and that sort of thing. I don't think we'd ever get to there. We just understand that they're present. They're part of the production process for the grain or the hops and they just sort of on the ride through the brewing process and they finish in final beer. Uh, But I think it's important. And and from a historical perspective, and and hopefully some of the, the listeners can remember or maybe they can remember their mum or their grandmum. It was actually commonplace for m- sort of mothers that had just given birth and, and they're starting to feed the bub. They'd be given a stout or a beer while they're still in the hospital because they knew the level of folate in beer was a benefit to the growing infant. I can't imagine that would be commonplace now. <laughs> we can't, you know, I just can't imagine the health system would allow that sort of thing. But certainly, when mum goes home, um, having a, a glass of stout a day probably is not. a a really bad thing uh, because of the the, the folic uh, acid or the folate in the beer. Um, But again, it wouldn't be the only source. We'd certainly suggest that they're getting all these B group vitamins from other sources as well. So I think we just need to understand, and I think this is where uh, the industry probably hasn't tapped into this understanding enough or this knowledge enough that we have these vitamins minerals in beer. And as soon as you start having this conversation, they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, when we studied that, I remember that, but it's sort of not their priority to think about that when they're brewing beer styles. They're just saying, well, we're brewing beer for this type, we're using this type of recipe, we're using these types of hops, we're making a double IPA, and we're trying to get this aroma profile. It's not part of their psyche to think about, well, we're bringing all these vitamins and minerals with it. But as soon as you start to talk about it, they go, oh, yeah, so we remember that. So I think it's just something I would like the industry to have more data available for the industry at large and so they can talk to their their customers about this as well rather than just say, well, here's some delicious, hoppy, juicy IPAs. Uh, Do you get those banana esters and do you get that fruity and tropical flavours? I think it's really important that they have this information available because I think people are generally interested now to know really what's in some of the things they're eating and drinking.
1: Glenn, I'll, I'll have you know, my wife and I have four kids, and with every single one of them, I have uh, smuggled some beer into the recovery room for uh, once we get out of labor and delivery. So,
3: I really like to hear that. Coming up, one of the things people probably don't know is beer has melatonin Uh, maybe on a long trip if we get to somewhere and we go and have a beer we can have sort of get our daily requirement for melatonin
1: i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
3: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, Try what's really new in Malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com.
2: Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa.
0: Brought to you by CanCraft. We all know how important first impressions are, so put your best can forward by partnering with CanCraft. Offering a full-service packaging experience, CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business from concept through to delivery of ready-to-fill beverage cans. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash CanCraft to learn how CanCraft can help realize your brand potential.
1: Have you exceeded your growth plans and looking to build a new seller? AlphalaVal can help with your cold block project. Based on our own core components, construction sets, process know-how, and experienced engineering team, the Laval project culture ensures a proactive mindset that allows us to work closely with our customers to execute the best tailored cold block process solution each time with focus on reducing water, energy, and carbon footprint with the highest product quality at lowest operational and maintenance cost. Call on AlphaVal to help you accomplish your production expansion goals. Visit us at alphavalus slash mbaa to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Using Cellpose 2.0, and open source deep neural network for yeast cell counting webinar on September 19th. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal September 21st. The District Ontario Iron Brewer Competition is September 23rd. District New England meets at Counterweight Brewing September 23rd. District Northwest meets in Olympia October 21st and 22nd. The District Midwest Technical Conference is October 28th and 29th. District Great Plains meets November 11th and 12th at Free State Brewing in Lawrence. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now, back to the show. When it comes to beer and health, it feels like the negative headlines seem to outweigh the positive headlines. Talk about some of that negative press.
3: I guess over the last couple of years, I have seen some negative press and and, and others have probably seen it well. And I don't think... The social media, well, certainly how some of these media companies use their social media, and they talk about clickbait. Uh, so they put up these really interesting headlines about the negative impacts between alcohol and health. And often they've got an image of a guy who might be a little bit overweight drinking beer. And it does seem that's their go-to uh, promotion of someone who's not healthy, uh, and it's all about the beer. Uh, really don't like that Um, and I think that the the media people need to be more objective and target the beer industry a a bit less. A couple of studies have used some long term or use longitudinal studies. So they've actually tracked groups of people So, and these are some big groups and often that might be out of the UK where they've tracked nurses over 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, and they've used these studies before to look at uh, smoking and the risks of smoke and, and human health and cancer, as well as other lifestyles, food and, and, and food consumption and, and types of food people are eating with to do with obesity. So they've sort of tapped into that data again and, and looked at alcohol consumption, and they're coming up with things like how there's links between alcohol consumption and impact on brain capacity and brain size, and they talk about brain shrinkage because of excessive alcohol consumption over these longitudinal studies. And it also impacts on life expectancy. So you could actually reduce your life expectancy by a couple of years if you consume in excessive amounts. And I guess this is where they don't want to put that in the headline that if you drink excessively for years, it will have an impact. Well, you don't have to be Einstein to know that, but they just want to have these sort of clickbait headlines. If you look at populations that have drunk in moderation and have a good balance of food as well, then you actually get longer life expectancies. So it's disappointing when the media outlets want to grab that headline and only associate the negative, but not dig deep enough in the study to say, oh, yes, this is really about excessive alcohol consumption. There are some studies around that will even say one drink per day is excessive, but I think they're in the minority and I don't think their data would actually stand up uh, through true scientific rigour. There are far more studies that suggest that one drink per day is actually having far more health benefit than any negative benefit of, of the alcohol itself. So I think this is where, again, the industry needs to think about how it deals with these sorts of things? Do the industry want to just say, okay, we know that's not true. It's just a headline grabber. But I think the way young folks nowadays are are looking at social media and maybe mainstream media and they see these headlines, is that having a negative impact on our industry? Are they looking for alternatives and looking only at non-alcoholic drinks, not just non-alcoholic beer, but just non-alcoholic drinks in general? So I think the industry has to be prepared to have something to counter those arguments. And, and at least some of these bigger media outlets, when they see, report these sorts of stories, they often get someone from the industry to have that counter discussion, which I think is great. But sometimes it's just been clickbait, and they just talk about the story that's, you know, the, the scientific publication, and they don't get any response from the industry itself. But I think the industry even prepares some documents and make these documents available would be really useful. So not only the brewing industry, but even the general public have this at their sort of av- available to them if they're actually so interested in saying, well, that's interesting, but let's see if there's a negative part to this story as well. Um, so that's where I would hope the industry can start to sort of come together and, and have that collective discussion about how they present the, the positive aspects of, of beer.
1: Glenn, do you think there is any scientific basis for Any of the claims that beer negatively affects aging or dementia or any of that sort of thing?
3: I think there's a lot of other dimensions to this, and it would be predisposed genetic conditions, a lifestyle, a long lifestyle, and and whether you've been a smoker in conjunction with drinking beer or you've basically had um, pasta and pizza for the last 30 years. Or you're a hamburger and hot, die, hot dog person. Um, all of that stuff needs to be considered as a whole, rather than just taking this sort of data: that how much alcohol did you consume? You know, one beer, one drink per day, or one drink per week, or, or or those sorts of numbers. I think the I think the data in general would suggest that overall alcohol is alcohol consumption in moderation is of a benefit. But when these studies don't talk about these underlying genetic conditions that people might be predisposed to or incorporate food consumption over a lifetime with this. I think it's really badly presented and, again, puts the alcohol industry in a bad light. Now, I'm just not saying the beer industry, but the alcohol industry in a bad light when they just have that as a headline. So I think it's got to be looked at as a, a total package. Uh, And we know, John, we're old enough to have been around a long time. And yes, when we're in our 20s, we might have drank more and (laughs) been less um, conscious of of some food choices we made. But then then we get a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser, uh, and we're making some better choices about how much we drink and, and food we consume. So I think when you just take the alcohol consumption as in itself, things can look bad. But if you look at it as in a total package of lifestyle, food consumption, pre-genetic conditions, environment, I think the story isn't as bad as some of those headlines might present.
1: I remember years ago when a whole lot of baby boomers wrote off beer due to a popular diet trend, or maybe fad is a better word for it. Talk about the infamous South Beach diet's misguided attack on beer.
3: I, I think people were really keen to cherry pick data and most folks weren't prepared to sort of do their own proper research and I think it, had, it came at a cost to our industry and I think this is where, again, people won't take responsibility for that and they say, oh, well, at the time, that's what we thought was okay. Uh, when there was actually counter or, or data countering that, uh, but people weren't, and again, this is where the industry probably could do a little more or maybe a little better in countering some of that. Uh, but it certainly, I think, hurt our industry. And there's been a couple of those instances over the years and a couple of sort of politicians around the world uh, and even um, medical institutions have really quite have been quite negative on this. But again, they really are cherry picking some data and not actually presenting the whole story. So I think those sorts of things really can get a lot of traction if the industry isn't prepared to sort of speak out and fight against it.
1: In that particular case, I mean, it was just totally baseless, you know. I mean, they're they're basically saying that beer was loaded with maltose, you know. Um, Well, sure, before fermentation.
3: Yeah, I hope it is. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and this is where they sort of – we've had a number of – sort of prominent individuals talk about that and don't understand the brewing process. They don't understand the science of brewing. And they pre- sort of talked about that, that sort of composition of, of the raw, well, not even the composition of the raw material, the composition of, of beer and not understanding the actual process and, again, cherry-picking some data that makes them look good and maybe helps them sell some books um, and it's complete nonsense and they need to be called out.
1: When people find out that I'm a brewer, they often ask why I'm so skinny. Why does everybody think beer makes us fat?
3: I get all my students asking this the same question. The students sort of, you know, assuming that they're 21 and they've only just started to drink for the first time in their lives and they're saying, oh, I'm going to start drinking beer, but I don't want to get fat. Um, I'm going, well, that's fine. Don't eat pizza and hot dogs while you're drinking your beer. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think this is where people again don't understand the composition of, of beer. Most of our sort of mainstream beers and that four or five percent alcohol content, most of the calories come from the alcohol. And we're still only looking at two, maybe 150 to 250 calories in those sort of standard drinks. When the sort of assumed daily calorie intake should be around 15 to 1,800, depending on whether you man or woman and your body type and, and your health regime and a few other things, okay, so you could easily have four or five beers and maybe get your whole calorie intake. But that won't be the only thing you consume that day. You will still consume probably another 1,000 to 2,000 two calories of food. What is that food? What does that look like? Um, so this is where we've got to explain the situation that, The calories in in beer come mostly from the alcohol. So if you're drinking two or three double IPAs or triple IPAs, and I I do like a double and a triple IPA, but I'm normally only having one at a time, you're looking at then three three, three to 350 calories. So you only need a couple of those, and you really are stretching your calorie balance. But again, what are you having in in conjunction with that? Um, So we really try and make people understand that it's not necessarily the calories in beer that will make you fat it's everything that's being consumed at the same time and we've all been to a football game and you go and have a beer but then you grab a hot dog and maybe grab something else a pretzel and and those sorts of things so you easily blow your whole calorie count at one meal but most of that you've done with the food you've had not the beer you've consumed
1: so how can we best work together to reverse the negative health narrative
3: I think the the industry has to put and and again I'm happy to to help here and I know there's others uh, and the, Charlie Bamforth does a great job in, in narrating this uh, this story as well and how positive that beer can be for human health uh, and and for sort of the community in general. I think we need to have some really robust data behind all of these these conversations we have. So. And there is plenty of robust data. There's no doubt about that. There's really plenty of data to support all these things we're saying. And I think we have to have them available to the brewers, but also put it out in a way that people can look at it through, through some of the brewing associations and even through other, uh, if companies want to put it on their websites. We can't make the health claims that, health, that beer is healthy or you could substitute uh, a multivitamin and, and drink beer instead. Uh, I think that's a really slippery slope we, we would go on, but I think we just have to be able to say that there are all these health benefits or nutritional uh, groups in beer, uh, rather than saying that the beer is healthy. Uh, I think we legally can't say that, but I think we have to be able to at least provide this broad range of, of compositional data to say, well, this is actually what's in beer. Uh, And, and again, maybe our friends in the wine industry would like to champion this with us and say, well, this is actually what's in wine and we have these common groups of compounds that a beer and wine have. Um, And, again, we can sort of be rowing in the same direction and not rowing against each other um, with the the wine industry. I think there's too much at, at stake when people are happy to just grab a headline about how bad alcohol is for us Uh, We know the industry is still strong and it's growing uh, and certainly growing in the non-alcoholic segment. But I think it wouldn't take too much and suddenly things could start to sort of slip and slip away from us. So I think this is where the industry over the next year or two could start to put some of this data together and have available for the brewers, remind the brewers, um, go back to the textbooks if they need to and say, well, okay, yeah, I I remember learning about this, but we don't sort of include that in our daily narrative about when, we, when we're talking about beer styles and, and what beer we're making.
1: How can brewers design their recipes to be more healthy?
3: I don't think they really need to focus on that to sort of let's make a healthy beer. Uh, I think it just comes The beer, the raw materials have all of that in it. Um, I think they just have to be aware that, yes, that's what's in in my raw material. They're not just getting the barley for the sugars, potential sugars and amino acids and some other compounds, and the hops is not just about the alpha acids and the the oil uh, profile. Um, But just to sort of remind themselves that there is all this other stuff present in barley and wheat and other grains if they're using other grains and all these other things present in hops um, and just sort of – remind themselves that, yes, if I'm making an IPA, I'm actually increasing the level of phenolic acids and and polyphenols, so I would actually have a higher antioxidant profile in that beer. Again, I don't think there'd be too many breweries happy to put that on the can. Um, I don't think they're allowed to put that on the can, but I, I think they just need to think about there is all of this positive health nutritional compounds in these raw materials. And they're coming along in the brewing process and certain beer styles, you're actually increasing those significantly.
1: Glenn, how might the DO levels of packaged beers affect the antioxidant capabilities of beer? Does a brewery with lower TPOs make healthier beer than a brewery with higher TPO? And is that a good reason for consumers to seek out fresh beer?
3: I think so. I think... With higher levels of DO and TPO, then the higher risks of oxidation, especially in storage over time, are present. So you can actually reduce the antioxidant potential in those beers. And I I guess most of the industry is saying drink beer, drink it as fresh as you can. Um, Not for those reasons other than they think about staling, but they probably don't think about the reduction in antioxidant potential. But that should be part of their thinking now that okay we're if we've got beer and we know people aren't going to drink it for three months, you know there there is a risk of oxidation and staling, but also there's the risk of reducing the antioxidant potential um, so that that's definitely something to think about, but I think brewers are thinking about let's just present the beer and have people encourage people to drink it as fresh as possible,
1: yeah, it'd be good to find another way to motivate you know. The whole supply chain to keep beer fresh, you know. So if consumers were excited about getting fresh beer, not only because it tastes better, but because it's better for them, that would be a good thing.
3: Well, we're we're up in Yakima at the moment, and we've had a couple of uh, sort of fresh, fresh hopped um, beers at a couple of the the, the farms we're visiting, uh, and to just be adding sort of fresh harvest hops, <laughs> the freshness and the the clara- the the cleanliness of those beers really is. Uh, it's quite a joy to be drinking at the moment, um, but as soon as we sort of get into a few months' time, uh, they're using pelletized hops and or dried hops. Then um, it does lose a little bit of that freshness. But even when the beer is brewed, uh, consumption within within weeks is is really encouraged, uh, and I don't think people understand that um, that that's an important part.
1: Glenn, I'm sure this is a, something you've you've spent some time considering. Um- is there anything in particular we need researchers to study to shed more light on the health benefits of beer or non-alcoholic beer?
3: My interest is really to sort of look at what's in some of these new styles of beer, um, but certainly at the at the far ends of the or the new ends of the of the beer we're, we're looking at. So the non-alcoholic range compared to your doubles and triples, as I said, in the eighties and nineties when Researchers were profiling what was in beer. Uh, we were limited to our, our sort of lagers and ales and maybe some porters and stouts. IPAs were probably only just uh, getting a foothold in the industry and double and, IPA and triple IPAs weren't really a thing. I think now we've sort of pushed that uh, those levels of antioxidants reasonably high in those, but we haven't really quantified those in a, in a way that we could – compare all of those beer styles and same with the hazy beers where if we're using more wheat and more oat in those hazies well you're getting more fiber from the wheat and the oat um, potentially and then along that along with that would come uh, the vitamins and minerals as well so we're adding more of that into those beer styles so you know and, and as in the 80s and 90s juices and hazies weren't a thing if we had a hazy Ale, you knew you had a problem. It wasn't intentional, um, so there was something the brewery wanted to fix. But now they're deliberately producing hazies, so they're actually potentially adding more vitamins and minerals to their beer without thinking it in, in that context. Um, so, from my perspective, and I've got a student looking at this at the moment, we're really trying to sort of cover that broader scope of beer styles now to really get a basically put it down a new baseline, uh, so that we have this much broader. Uh, range of beer styles so let's understand in those are we really getting to really high levels of b group vitamins in in some of these beers and exceptionally high levels of silica and selenium and calcium uh, again we would never say substitute beer for food uh, or multivitamins but it's it will be nice to know that that's what these beer styles are contributing to sort of the nutritional platform
1: and much of what we've discussed today can be found in Charlie's book. Do you want to give a plug for that? Um, seems like we probably should.
3: It's on my desk most days of the week. So Charlie's book, uh, Beer and Health, is probably my go-to when students ask about um, beer and, and what's in beer uh, and what's the healthy components in beer. Uh, it, it really does profile... Um, hundreds of different beers around the world uh, that were available at the time, as well as give some really important information about the overall nutritional benefits of some of these things that are in beer, but then sort of present the, the levels of some of these um, vitamins and minerals and antioxidants that are in beer. And again, for most cases with the mo- vitamins and minerals, we're not at the level in beer that we should you know, that is recommended for daily intake. For most of those, so again you know you need to be getting a balanced diet to bring in that those levels of, of vitamins but the book itself really does give a broad coverage of all of these components the fiber the proteins uh, amino acids uh, and something we haven 't probably touched on much John is is the contribution of amino acids to human health and the positive contribution of some of these amino acids to reducing the risk of anxiety um, and and uh, one of the things people probably don't know is beer has melatonin. Um, it comes from the grain itself. So under, under stress, the grain can produce melatonin. So uh, maybe on a long trip, if we get to somewhere and we go and have a beer, we can have sort of get our daily requirement for melatonin. Um, so
1: that's why well, beer makes me sleepy.
3: Well, maybe.
1: <laughs>
3: maybe. Maybe. Um, not if it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I think everyone just gets sleepy. Um, but there's all these things that are in beer that people either don't know or they did know but they don't sort of recall that, you know, let's let's talk about this again. So I think it's covered in, in that book. There are other books as well, but I think Charlie's is probably the, the go-to uh, if you really want the most comprehensive uh, look at all the nutritional components that come from beer. <laughs>
1: That was Glenn Fox here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links to a couple of books on this topic by Charlie Bamforth. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers Podcast and that you appreciate their support.